Chapter 23 of The Inner Shrine by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 23. Mademoiselle has sent for me. Emile kissed the hand that Miss Grimston, without rising from her comfortable chair before the fire, lifted toward him. The hand screen with which she shielded her face protected her not only from the blaze, but from his scrutiny. In the same way, the winter gleaming with its uncertain light nerved her against her fear of self-betrayal, giving her that assurance of being mistress of herself that she lacked when he was near. I did send for you. I wanted to see you. Won't you sit down? They've been expecting the summons, he said significantly, taking the seat on the other side of the hearth. Indeed, why? I thought the day would come when you would be more just to me. You thought I'd hear things? Perhaps. I have. That's why I've asked you to come. During the deep silence before she spoke again, he was able to congratulate himself on his diplomacy. He checked his first impulse to come to her with his great news immediately on his return from Lakefield. He'd seen how relatively ineffective the information would be were it to proceed bluntly from himself. He had even restrained Mrs. Bayford's enthusiasm in order to let the intelligence filter gently through the neutral agencies of common gossip. In this way, it would seem to Miss Crimson a discovery of her own, and appeal to her as an indirect corroboration of his word. He had the less scruple in taking these precautions, in that he believed Diane to have justified anything he might have said of her. It was no small relief to a man of honour to know he had not been guilty of a gratuitous slander, even though it was only on a woman. He waited Miss Grimston's next words with complacent expectancy. When they came, they surprised him. I wondered a little why you should have been at Lakefield. I'm afraid you'll think it was for a very foolish reason, he laughed. But I'll tell you if you want to know. I went because I thought you were there. I? At three o'clock in the morning? It was like this, he went on. You'll pardon me if I say anything to give you offence, but you'll understand of the reason why. On the day when we all lunched together at the restaurant pits, you, Madame, your aunt, your friend Monsieur Reggie Bradford, and I, I was a little jealous of some understanding between you two, in which I was not included. You spoke together in whispers, and exchanged glances in such a way that all my fears were aroused. Afterwards, you went away with him. That evening at the Stuyvesant Club, I heard a strange rumour. It was whispered from one to another until it reached me. Your friend, Monsieur Bradford, is not a silent person, and what he knows is sure to become common property. The rumour, which I grant you was an absurd one, was to the effect that he had persuaded you to run away and marry him, and that you had actually been seen on the way to Lakefield in his car. I was in his car, that's quite true. Ah, and there was some foundation for the report. Madame, your aunt, will have told you how I hurried here about eleven o'clock that night. You had disappeared, leaving nothing behind but an enigmatic note saying you would explain your absence in the morning. What was that I to think, mademoiselle? I was afraid to think. I didn't stop to think. I determined to follow you. It was too late for any train, so I took an auto. I reached the Patry Inn and saw what I saw. Voila! A smile of amusement flickered over his grey features, but she made no remark. 
If I was guilty of an indiscretion in following you, mademoiselle, he pursued, it was because of my great love for you. If you had chosen to marry someone else, I couldn't have kept you from it, but at least I was determined to try. I thought it incredible that you should take a step like that, in secrecy and flight. Yet I find so many strange ways of marrying in America, that I must be pardoned for my fear. As it is, I cannot regret it, since by a miracle it gave me proof of that which you have found it so difficult to believe. It has grieved me more than I could ever make you understand to know that during all these months you have doubted me. I'm sure of that, he said softly, gazing into the fire. Haven't you wondered where I was that night when you followed me to Lakefield? If I had, I shouldn't presume to inquire. It's a secret, but I should like to tell it to you. I know you'll guard it sacredly because it concerns a woman's honour. If she did not look up, she felt the startled toss of the head, characteristic of his moments of alarm. If Mademoiselle is pleased to be satirical, no, there's no reason why I should be satirical. If in spite of everything my confidence in you wasn't absolute, I shouldn't risk a name I hold so dear as that of Dorothea Prune. Tiens, he exclaimed under his breath. Miss Prune is a charming girl, but she's been very foolish. What she did was not quite so bad in American eyes as it would be in French ones, but it was certainly very willful. If you heard rumours of an elopement, it was hers. Mon Dieu, the big Monsieur Reggie. Not quite. I didn't tell you the young man's name. It will be enough to say that the big Monsieur Reggie, as you call him, is in his confidence. It was Reggie who undertook to convey Dorothea to Lakefield, where she was to meet the bridegroom-elect and marry him. And then? Then Reggie told me. It was silly of anyone to entrust him with a mission of the kind, for he couldn't possibly keep it to himself. He told me while we were lunching at the Bliss. That's what he was whispering. That's why I went away with him after lunch and left you with my aunt. I saw you were annoyed, but I couldn't help it. You wanted to dissuade him? I tried, but I saw it was too late for that. Then he would desert his friend at the last minute. The only concession I could bring from him was that he should let me take his place in the loader. You? I drive at least as well as Mr. Bradford. I made him see that in case of accident it would make all the difference in the world for Miss Prune's future life to be with a woman rather than a man. Did you make her see it too? I didn't try. The arrangement these wise young people had made rendered the substitution easy. Dorothy had apparently considered it a part of the romance not to know with whom he was going or where she was being taken. At the time and place appointed she found an automobile driven by a person in a big fur coat, cap and goggles. It agreed that she would enter and ask no questions. And did she? She fulfilled her engagement to the letter. As soon as she was seated, I drove away, and for six hours I didn't hear a sound from her. Six hours? Did it take you all that time to reach Lakefield? I didn't go to Lakefield. I took her to Philadelphia. And one object was to keep her from meeting the young man that night. But perhaps that's where I made my mistake. But why? It's better for her that she shouldn't. Ah, perhaps. Not for everyone else. You see, I lost my way two or three times. Though, as I've been over the ground twice already, 
I was always able to write myself after a while. Near Trenton, Dorothea got frightened, and when I peeped inside I could see she was crying. As all danger was over then, I stopped and let her see who I was. Was she angry? Quite the contrary. The poor child was terrified at her own rashness, and very much relieved to find she had been kept from being as foolish as she had intended. I got in beside her and let her have her cry out in comfort. After that we ate some sandwiches and took heart. It was weird work in the dead of night and along the lonely roads, but we pushed on and crept into Philadelphia between one and two in the morning. That was a very brave act, mademoiselle. The Empeville's eyes glistened and his face lighted up with an ardour that was not dampened by the casual, almost listless air in which he told her story. It might have been better if I'd let the whole thing alone. Why so? You can really interfere in other people's affairs without doing more harm than good. If I'd let them go their own way, Diane Evelyn wouldn't have been put in a false position. Ah? Uh -huh. That's the other part of the story. If I'd known, I should have left the matter in her hands. She would have managed it better than I. As it was, she made my bit of help superfluous. I should find it hard to credit that, he said, twisting his fingers nervously. You won't when I tell you. In the quiet, unaccentuated manner in which she had given her own share in the action, she gave Diane's. Shading her eyes with the hand screen, she was able to watch his play of feature and note how the first forced smile of bravado faded into an expression of crestfallen gravity. You see, she concluded, they were frantic at Dorothea's failure to appear. When you arrived, they naturally thought it was she. And if Derek Prude hadn't lost his head when he saw you, he wouldn't have tried to thrust her out of sight as though she were caught in a crime. It was so like a man to do it. A woman would have had a dozen ways of disarming your suspicion, while he did the very thing to arouse it. I don't blame you for thinking what you did, not in the least. I don't even blame you for telling it it would seem to bear out what you said before. I should only blame you. Yes, mademoiselle, you would only blame me. I should only blame you if, now that you know the truth, you didn't correct the impression you have given. Are you going to begin on that again? he asked in a tone of disappointment. I'm not beginning again because I've never ceased. If I say anything new on the subject, it is this, that it's time the final word was spoken. I agree with you there. It is time for that word. But you must speak it. There was a ring of energy in his voice which caused her to turn from her contemplation of the fire and look at him. When she did, he had taken on a new air of resolution. I think it's time we came to a definite understanding, he went on, and that you should see how the matter looks from my point of view. You speak of doing right, mademoiselle, as if it were an easy thing. You don't realise that for me it would have to be the last act but one in life. In spite of the shock, she ignored his implied confession, going on to speak in the tone of ordinary conversation. The last act but one? I don't understand you. Really? I'm surprised at that. You're so good a sportsman that I could think you'd see that if I do what you ask, there will be only one more thing left for me. For a few minutes she looked at him silently with fixed gaze, 
taking in the full measure of his meaning. That's folly, he said at last. Is it? Not for me. It might be for some people, but not for me. You must remember who I am. I'm a Frenchman. I'm an aristocrat. I'm a Bionville. I'm a member of a class, of a clan, that lives and breathes on honour. I can do without almost everything in the world but that. I can do without money. I can do without morals. I can do without most kinds of common honesty. I can do without nearly all of the Christian virtues and still keep my place among my friends. But I can't do without that particular shade of conduct that they and I understand by the word honour. Aren't you doing without it as it is? No, because there again our code is special to ourselves. Thus, the crime is not in suspicion nor supposition. It isn't even in detection. It's in admission. It's in confession. All sorts of things may be thought of you and said of you and even known of you, and you can bluff them out. But when you have acknowledged them, you're doomed. Even so, isn't it better to acknowledge them and be doomed? That's the question. That's what I have to decide. That's where you must help me decide. If you had allowed me, I should have made up my own mind on my own responsibility. But you won't let me. Now that the incident at Lakefield is no good as evidence, I see that you will never rest until we come to the plainest of plain speech. The problem I've had to solve is this. Is Diane Evelyn to be happy, or am I? Is she to rise while I go under, or shall I keep her down and stay on the surface? Since it's her life or mine, which is it to be? The alternative may be a brutal one, but there it is. And you've decided in your own favour. So far, I've been actuated by the instinct of self-preservation. And are you going to persist in it? That's for you to tell me. But I should like to remind you first of this, that if I don't, I go. And what if, if I went with you? You couldn't. The journey would be too long. But you needn't go so far if I'm there. I couldn't take you with me. You must understand that. I once knew an American girl who married a man who Cheated her cards, buried herself alive with him. I wouldn't let a woman do that for me. But if she wanted to, in that case she ought to be protected from herself. There's no use in ruining two lives where one will do. There's such a thing as losing your life to find it. If so, it's something for me to do alone. Isn't it a kind of moral cowardice to say that? I don't think so. To me it seems only looking things squarely in the face. I'm not the sort of man for whom there's any possibility of beginning life anew. A man like me can't live things down. When once, by his own confession, he has lost his honour, there's no rehabilitation that can make him a man again. Like Cain, he has got to go out from the presence of the Lord. Only, unlike Cain, there's no land of Nod waiting to receive him. There's no place for him anywhere on earth. A few years ago, when I was motoring in the Black Forest with the Dobongis, 
it dropped into a little hole of an inn as, as nearly out of the world as anything could be. As we approached the door, a man got up from a bench and shambled away. When he got to what he considered a safe distance, he turned to look at us. I knew him. It was Jacques de la Tour de Lorme. Really? The poor wretch had hidden himself in that godforsaken spot where he supposed no one would be able to track him down. But we had done it. I have never forgotten his weary gait or the woebegone look in his eyes. It's what would come to me if I waited for it. I don't see why. There's no similarity between the cases. Jacques de la Tour de Lorme did wrong he could never put right. You'd be doing the very thing he found impossible. He shook his head. It wouldn't make any difference in my world. Nobody there would think of the wrong or the right. They'd only consider what I don't do. It's the confession that would ruin me. Surely you exaggerate. You could do it quietly. No one need know. Outside Eric Brewer and two or three more of us. I don't do things in that way, he said, with an odd return of his old-time pride. If I put the woman right, it shall be in the eyes of the world. I don't ask to have things made easy for me. If I do it at all, I shall do it thoroughly. I'm not afraid of it or of anything it entails. It's a curious thing that a man of my makeup is afraid of being ridiculed or being given the cold shoulder, but he's not afraid to die. But he was looking straight at her. He was too deeply engrossed in his own thoughts to see how proudly her head went up, or to note the flash of splendid light in which her glance enveloped him. I was all ready to die, he pursued in the same meditative tone, that morning on the Quai Catalan. George Edith could have had my life for the asking. I'd never know him to miss his mark, and he wouldn't have missed me. He hadn't had another destination for his bullet. I've regretted it more than once. I've had pretty nearly all that life could give me, and I've made a mess of it. You haven't had love, she ventured. Love? He echoed with a short laugh. I've had every kind of love but one, and that I'm not worthy of. We get a good many things we're not worthy of, but they help us just the same. This wouldn't help me, he returned, speaking very slowly. I shouldn't know what to do with it. It would be as useless to me in my new condition as a captive of pearls to a slave in the galleys. So, what would you do? I'd do right at any cost. She scarcely knew that the words were spoken, so intent was her thought on the strange mixture of elements in his personality. It was not until she had waited in vain for a response that she found the echo of her speech still in her mental hearing and recognised its import. Her first impulse was to cry out and take it back, but she restrained herself and waited. It was an instant in which the love of bearing that was so instinctive in her nature who, as it were, a trumpet challenge for the same passion in his own, while they sat staring at each other, wide-eyed and speechless, in the dancing firelight. End of chapter 23